Hey, welcome to Conversations with my dear friend, Jeff Conway. My name is Susan. This is A Different Kind of Walk. Hello. You look so good. Nice sweater. Your glasses are cool. Um, I'm dressed. Yeah, I'm not in my jammies. <laughs> so... Uh, I just got a text from a friend, which I thought was interesting, said humans eat more bananas a year than monkeys. Hmm. And I found that surprising because I've never eaten a monkey before. (laughs) (laughs) That's really funny. Hmm. Well, yeah. So here's the deal. Um, I just took a handful of pills okay. and some people think I'm being dramatic and I know a handful of pills can send dramatic at time, but that's just the reality. I think there are seven or eight in my hand. Mm-hmm. So in about 30 minutes, it might be kind of like a truth serum where you can ask any question you want. Yay! <laughs> answer. So I had my appointment on Wednesday mm-hmm. and I think they tripled one medicine and doubled two other of the pain medicines. So I'm doing much better. And it was horrible at first sleep-wise, but I'm starting to get used to it. Uh, If I don't fall asleep, I'm super dizzy. And like I said, this might be a true serum drug also that you can ask me any question you want to in 30 minutes but um for those that reach out thank you and i try to respond to most people but um but yeah i'm the pain meds are working my eyes i'm still blind i mean my left eye the ulcer definitely is gone because it felt like a piece of glass was caught in my eye when i would blink and that's not there anymore and So I just have to go back to them every four to six weeks or months and get that amniotic sac put in the eye that will help bring moisture and hopefully not get to the place that, you know, I still see white flashes regularly over here. So yeah, that's a concern for that, for the retina that I have to pay attention to. So not to let that go too long, but, um, gotcha. Um, and then I have an appointment. I, I think I told you the first week of March now at the ALS BLS clinic okay. in Philadelphia. So that's a great thing. Does that mean that you're officially diagnosed or no? No, no. So they told me that would be a three hour appointment, which is also a great thing versus having yeah. 20 minutes with a neurologist every six months to say, eh. yeah okay yeah yeah so that's do you want to give a health report how's how's your nose (laughs) my nose is actually running a little bit but um, last night uh rosie was puking all night long so um yeah so that's not fun so she's home and downstairs um if she interrupts us that won't surprise me also if i end up running out of the room to puke in the toilet that wouldn't surprise me i'm terrified that i'm gonna get whatever she has
Yeah, so welcome back to A Different Kind of Walk. Jeff and I are here to talk some more about deconstruction and reconstruction and faith and continue the conversation we had in the last episode. So a quick reminder, I'm going to go over the four stages of faith that we are talking about. There are lots of different models of this, and it's just a tool for understanding your journey. It's not meant to be a hard and fast literal scientific truth. So stage one is intuitive and mythic and literal. In this stage, you're usually a child learning your parents' faith. Um, You learn through stories, and right and wrong is based on what you sense in your gut. Uh, You have a very uncomplicated sense that the world works the way it does because God makes it do so. So that's the first stage. In stage two, which I'm going to call conventional, in stage two, you learn to follow all the rules of a specific belief system or model. And your personal identity gets kind of merged with how well you do at following the rules of that model. So as such, people can often stay in this stage forever because the black and whiteness of the system gives you an easy framework for assessing yourself and others and any situation that you might encounter really. So this stage has all the right answers ready to go in an easy to read booklet. Then stage three is deconstruction and reflection. So here you tend to get tired of the easy answers of stage two, and you start poking holes in the system to see if it still holds up. Uh, We've talked about it in terms of Legos in a couple episodes, pulling the Legos apart and examining each piece. And as such, this stage can feel a bit unsettling or destructive or painful sometimes. So, but the hope is that you will move through deconstruction and get into stage four, which is one of peace and harmony. And in this stage, you're able to look at situations from many different perspectives and try to have compassion on all sides. Um, People in this stage tend to admit that there aren't really any easy answers and that we must embrace the mystery if we are to trust God. Um, So those are the four stages that we'll be talking about. Again, there are lots of different models six stages, 11 stages, uh, and they just get more nuanced, but for our purposes. And, you know, I think I would probably say, as I was listening to you there, um, you know, we in Western culture um, like to have things linear. Mm -hmm. And um, so very easily somebody could be in stage three, and move back to stage one or two um, or be in stage four and then go back to stage two. And so it's not like a stair step that you just do something and, ah, you're there. Yeah. All of a sudden I have arrived. Right. Right. Cause I, so like, I wonder what's going to happen with me towards the end um, because I think I'm really good with God mm-hmm. and don't ever feel like God is not present, whether I'm talking to you or Netflix is on, or I'm reading a book. I always feel that presence of God, but I, as a minister was around so many people 
in their mm, typically 70s mm-hmm. where they began asking questions, did I do enough mm-hmm. to earn my way to be in the presence of God? Yeah. Um, and I hope I don't go through that, but um, that's a reality for a lot of folks. Yeah. But what you said reminds me of a, I'll, I'll give you a visual um, that I was given when I was in college. So if you think of like a tornado, think of a, a spiral going upward. So I, let's say I'm in the rules category, but then I've learned something new as I'm going around the spiral and I get back to the rules category and I can put that new thing on top of it and I see it in a different way. And then you go around the spiral again and same, same sort of thing. So like you're going to, it's not that we're just, I start in phase one, I learn rules and then I deconstruct and then I'm good. Like it, you will continue to go around and around um, and you come to each stage with like a newness each time. Did that make sense? Make, makes a lot of sense. Um I do like that in the image of tornado, there's also some chaos. Mm -hmm. So it's not just clean. So don't get trapped. Don't get trapped in believing that your journey of faith is just something purely linear. There will be linear moments to it that you can look back on or experience as you're going through them, but it's just not a linear experience. Mm-hmm. I think as a former pastor, one of my frustrations was trying to encourage in preaching mm-hmm. uh, because they were still in a certain stage and wanted to hear about that stage, particularly stage two. Um, I was challenged quite a bit over various issues like abortion, uh, sexuality. One person brought up, you know, the seven deadly sins. Um, Why aren't I talking about gluttony? Why aren't I talking about lust all the time? Why aren't I pointing my finger more? And Uh, To everyone that said that and asked me the question, I said, you are invited to come to my office anytime and have a conversation with me. And I would love to do that. And I would share with you thoughts and opinions on things. Uh, But let's take the issue of uh, abortion and preaching, which I did preach on three times and Uh, Each time was thanked by people who uh, were on both sides of the issue, which means I'm a wishy-washy pastor (laughs) or that I did what I wanted to do, Mm -hmm. which was encouraged people to think. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those that would rush up to me and say, you need to tell us exactly what you believe on this issue And I would say, come to my office, and I would tell them what I believe. 
uh, about an issue. And I would tell them why I wouldn't preach about that. Because if we use abortion and I'm looking at a congregation with 600 people sitting out there, um, who's had an abortion? Mm-hmm. Who uh, is greatly against abortion? Who's had a number of miscarriages and is grieving losing a child? Who had a horrible choice of, uh, do I go to full term with this child that might not be born alive and certainly won't live once they're born? You know, there are 30, 40 other things I can think out there pastorally. And so I want to talk to that person in a pastoral setting, not in a preaching setting. Individually, because there isn't a one size fits all conversation. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Typically um, for a number of issues out there, because of the way our world is right now, uh, a pastoral conversation is going to do a lot more for a person than a finger wagging this way or that way. So there are a number of people, you know, that I struggled with as a pastor that they didn't want me to be a pastor. They wanted me to be a priest in full vestments with a miter on a pedestal. Speaking words of truth from scripture and not words of truth from life. Yeah. Uh, Very much felt that way from some people. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I'll say as someone who is married to a pastor, like I never wanted to be a pastor's wife because the, the, the term pastor's wife has a very specific connotation to it that you, do you play piano and sing? (laughs) Do I play piano? Do I sing? Do I uh, lead children's ministry? Do I host the ladies tea? Do I, uh, do I knit? I actually do. But um, <laughs> I don't do, know if that's a thing. <laughs> do I wear the perfect clothes? Am I a, a perfect helpmate in every way? Yeah. So I never wanted to be a pastor's wife with all of those connotations. And thankfully, that's not what we've done. Maybe it's the privilege of planting your own church, but I never wanted to be that. And so I never was that. And we, Gary and I have always believed in living in community. So we've pretty much always had housemates who weren't a part of our family. And so it, if you live with people who aren't part of your family, it's pretty impossible to put a mask on. It's pretty impossible for people to not see how imperfect you are. And so that's that has been a privilege for me that like, I don't have to be perfect. My kids do not have to be perfect. We... Those expectations are not what we have done. And I'm really grateful for that. I still keep my fingers crossed that my kids continue to grow up and don't hate and reject God and the church. Um, Yeah. So in in Amarillo, um, during communion, we had a full loaf that I would break uh, during communion. But at the end of the service, there was a loaf of bread that was just left there and ad was four, maybe five and um, loved bread. Mm-hmm. 
So, you know, as everybody's milling around and doing things, he would sneak back in the sanctuary and grab the bread and be walking around all the people milling around. And I had somebody come up to me, do you know your son's eating the communion bread? Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm like, oh, no, I didn't know that. So, well, what are you going to do about it? And I said, well, um, in our tradition, and I explained what our tradition was, um, that was about the spiritual presence of Christ that was there. And and, um, uh, so we didn't just throw away the bread typically, uh, after we had used it. So um, I did that little explanation, and then I had a little chat with Addison. I said, you know, it's great that you're eating the bread, but why don't you take it back to my office and eat in my office instead of running around the whole church eating inside of the bread? He's like, okay. Yeah. You know, so he didn't get slapped with rules of somebody said this and you can't do that and all those kind of things. It was just kind of a casual conversation about communion bread. Yeah. Well, this actually is a perfect innocuous example of rules and knowing the rules and um, why this matters and also moving past it. So, Jeff, can you explain why someone would be upset with Addison eating the communion bread. Uh, Yeah, because they thought that the bread was um, holy and different, Mm -hmm. uh, which would be the case in the Catholic Church, but was not the case in the Presbyterian Church or various other churches. So, Yeah, exactly. So, On one hand, depending on what church you're in, you might have the tradition that the blessed bread and wine literally become Christ's body. And you would not throw something that special away, and you would not be okay with someone picking out on it either. So in those churches, if there are leftovers, they have to be eaten by the church leadership, or they have to be given back to the ground, Um, essentially like treated respectfully like we would treat a real body. And other traditions that believe different things have their own rules. Now, the thing is, no matter what your tradition, we have to ask, why do we take communion in the first place? We do it because Jesus did it, and he said to remember him by doing it or whenever we do it. So, like, remember how he lived, remember what he taught. And later, letters from the early church say that we should examine ourselves before we come to the bread and the cup and make sure that we're not holding grudges against one another because this food, this meal of Christ's, is supposed to be a table that unifies, that brings us together, that reminds us of Jesus's way of reconciliation and nonviolent self-sacrifice. So that that's a really big deal. This tradition comes from somewhere and it means something. That being said, sometimes we can miss the forest for the trees. Now, my kids, when they were really little, they saw us do communion all the time. So every now and then I would come home and they would be taking pieces of bread and dipping it in grape juice on our kitchen table. And just, they loved it. They just loved how it tasted. And that I was like, is this sacrilege or is this okay? Is it, I don't don't even know, but like. I I loved it. Our, our boys 
particularly when we were on ski trips, because we'd go away for an entire week, would lead worship. They would be in charge of leading worship, and they always added communion to their worship service, service that they led before we went skiing. And um, even said, you know, this is the body, this is the blood, and you know, had all of us drink um, a little bit of the juice. Um, and we're talking like they were four and seven um, when this first started, I think. But then, you know, when they hit where Barrett was maybe nine and Ad was six, little sermons would come out also, which I absolutely loved. That's amazing. I love it. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, our kids also, um, we do, we do allergy friendly elements be, and by elements, I mean the bread and the cup. Usually we use rice cakes, but every now and then we run out. And so we have to use like gluten-free bread and my kids do not like the gluten-free bread. So they'll be like, I don't know if I want to take communion today if it's bread. <laughs> and then we have to have the conversation about, well, why do we take this in the first place? And yeah. yeah. So yeah, this is just a really good example of something where like the rules matter. The rules came from somewhere. It's a, it is a big deal. Like we should be taking this seriously. This is communion. This means something, but also if I'm going to take the rules so seriously that I'm going to yell at a child for participating in this and potentially then make that child not want to participate at all in the first place. Right. Then the rules have gone too far. Um, That's a simple and easy example. That's not necessarily going to hurt anybody, but you can apply that to all these other topics that really, really do hurt people. Yeah. Yeah. They hurt people and they can make people think that they're mad at God when they're actually mad at the church. It's really interesting, like, you can have people who are in stage three and they're wrestling with this one particular issue, but in every other issue, they're in stage four. Like they, they've reached this place of peace with those other issues or right. vice versa. You can, you can have someone who is like completely firm in firmly in stage two, where they know exactly what they think and they know exactly what the right answer is on most topics. But then you get one particular issue that they're in stage three on and they're really, really wrestling and having like struggling with it. Which usually means they have a friend. Right. Acquaintance that they met that's somewhere in the stage three issue. And they're like, I want to love this person. But they don't fit. What do I do? (laughs) How do I do that? Yeah. Yeah. They don't fit my model. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. It's really hard. Hard. At this point in my journey, I'm, I appreciate running into people who don't fit into my scheme, whatever it is. 
um, into my schema. Um, because then I'm like, oh crap, well, I guess I need to consider that more. Cause the one thing, like the thing, at least again today, the thing that I am sure on is that God cares about everyone. God loves everyone. God is wanting everyone to come to God and that God can work in anyone, no matter where they're at. And so like, when I encounter someone who kind of blows my mind faith-wise and wondering how they fit into what God's doing, I enjoy it. It pushes me. Right. So how do you get people to move beyond the facts of God to a deep relationship with God? Mm-hmm. How do you help get through deconstruction in a healthy way? that allows you to be in that fourth stage of awe. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can spell that two ways. Mm -hmm. A-H, ah. Peace. And A-W-E, wow. Mm -hmm. God, you're incredible. My theory in answer to your question is that stage two learning all of the rules and getting everything down is diabolically opposed to stage four, which is the being at peace with whatever you encounter. What's nice about stage four is that you're, when you get to a stage of peace and great trust in God and your relationship with God, nothing is threatening if you encounter somebody and even if you don't understand what their lifestyle, how they fit into what God is doing, it doesn't really matter whether you understand it or not, because God's got this. Mm. Whereas when you're in, if you're in stage two, not only does it feel like that person needs to conform to all of the things that you've been taught because you have to conform to all the things that you've been taught in that stage two, you are also often told that it's your responsibility to make sure they know it. Um, It's your responsibility to go out and tell other people about the rules that you've learned. And in fact, if you go out and tell them, you might actually save them from the, like the error of their ways. People in stage two have a really, really hard time encountering people in stage four because stage four people, peace people, feel like they're really wishy-washy and they're not standing on anything. They're not articulating the same rules language that stage two people have learned. So Um, in my language, they smell different. They do. Yeah, you know, you can just smell when you're around a person that is sitting more in that stage four being held by God's loving presence. And I'll tell you, I never had somebody come to recognize they were loved by God as I went through the four spiritual laws with them uh, back in the 70s or 80s. It was all relationship, and it all took a little bit of time. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the celebration when the awe comes uh, is beautiful. 
Um, and sometimes that's a really quick process. Uh, like the guy that was dying in Florida when I went up to his bed and I was a smart aleck with him and, and he died probably a week and a half after we met, but we went through that whole process together and he was in awe of God, uh, at the end of that week and a half, uh, other people it's months, Mm -hmm. um, sometimes years. Uh, before they experience awe and awe and others, you know, I'm still praying uh, that that will happen for them. Mm -hmm. Oh, so yeah, it's, it's challenging, encouraging people in moving from one step to the other. And maybe the thing that you brought up that's really good is, bringing up that one item or one person that makes a stage tour start to look at what do I do with that Lego that I have placed here that maybe is not in the right place. Mm -hmm. And then what do you do with somebody who's had the Lego blocks all put together and then they, totally rip them apart and they're all scattered on the floor how do you help that person start to get put together the foundation again Mm -hmm. start to put together it's okay to believe this and leave this lego block over to the side right now Mm -hmm. Um, it's a process and it's a journey with people that takes a lot of listening on your part and my part and other people's parts. It's relationship with each other to be the body of Christ, to be the United church. Yeah. So there are two things that I want to say in response to what you said. Hopefully I don't forget them. One is if you are meeting with someone who, um, They seem to be in a place that doesn't make sense to you, whether you see them as struggling or whatever. If it makes you anxious, just as much as you can, listen, listen, listen. Being a soundboard that doesn't give them the answer, being a soundboard helps them articulate their faith and it will help them move themselves. So, so yeah, just what Jeff said, listen, listen, listen. It's so important to be a person who listens. Which actually helps us on our journey also as we're listening. Yeah, for sure. And then the other thing that I wanted to say is sometimes as we go through different stages, wherever we are, we look at the stage that we were, we used to be in. And, you know, we've moved past that stage, which usually comes with criticisms of that stage. And we look at that stage and sometimes we're tempted, sometimes I'm tempted to be like, that stage shouldn't exist. Like that stage was worthless. I wish that nobody went through that stage because it just caused harm or it was just detrimental to me. But the thing is like, we need all the stages. Like I needed that first stage of just hearing all of the stories for the first time, whether it was a good interpretation of those stories or not. 
And I needed that second stage where I learned all the rules and it was very black and white. And I could understand what this particular society was asking of me. Even if I didn't understand why the rules were there, I still needed to learn what they were. And I have needed to move into a stage of deconstruction where I look at all of those rules and I figure out why they're there and where they came from. But I've needed that stage, that third stage. Um, and I'm really grateful for that fourth stage. I feel like I kind of have one foot in stage four and one foot in stage three right now where on certain topics, I feel like I have a lot of peace and mm -hmm. I feel very unthreatened by things. And then, then there are still a few topics where I wrestle with them I, and I don't know what to do with them. And, or maybe I'm even upset by them and by how they've hurt society. So like, I'm still there in stage three on certain topics, but like, I just want to articulate that all of the stages have good in them and all of the stages need each other. So yeah, let's not throw all of them out. Yeah. So imagine me and 17 recognizing I'm loved by God the last month of my senior year of high school, immediately jumping into stage four, because it was all about awe and awe and going off to college immediately, not knowing what to do. You know, I joined the fraternity. I was a wild boy. And when I went to seminary, it was like diving into one, two, and three all together and struggling to get back to four. Wait a minute. Where did four go? So it was messy mm -hmm. uh, and very turbulent like that tornado, but beautiful. Yeah, growing and learning, going around the spiral can be chaotic at times, but it's still a good thing. Now, I took some notes before this meeting, and I'm going to try and pull that up because I did want to talk about church burn. Now, if people haven't heard that term before, when I say, how have you been burned by the church? I mean... How have you been hurt by some person or a whole group of people and their way of understanding their faith tradition? Um, and sometimes this is issues of abuse in the church, physical, sexual, or emotional abuse by a leader in the church. Sometimes the congregation as a whole is disappointed or hurt by a pastor or leadership um, taking a particular stance on something. And sometimes it's actually the other way around. People in leadership who get burned by their congregations. You know, like we talked about last time, if there is a God, instead of disease, we were talking about disease last time. Why would somebody get a disease if they were praying enough? Oh, if yeah. there's God, why would God let this horrible thing happen in my life is blended also with this happened to me by a leader mm -hmm. in the church. Yeah, wow. and it, it does really shake you when something not just unfortunate happens, when something actually traumatic 
happens in your life, it can really shake you. Um, And I'll, I'll say like, I know in the last episode I mentioned it's just not good thinking for us to look at events in our lives and say, well, this was a blessing from God and, or this was a curse from God. It's just not a good way of thinking because God can still be in any situation. I know I said that and I agree with that, but I'll also admit that when it comes to those situations where, yeah, you were abused by a leader in the church, I don't have the answer to that. If God exists and if God is as powerful as we think God is, I don't know why those things happen. I would widen this out to anybody asking questions about anything to anyone who's been abused in that way or physical abuse that happens in marriages. Uh, It's hard And I think what it takes is a lot of love and a lot of time uh, to walk with a person and not try to fix them. Right. Because God needs to be the one to fix them. We're called to love them. And, you know, I'm really sorry that happened to you. That was wrong. Yeah, that was wrong. You know, we need to be able to say that, and then we need to listen after we say that. And we might need to say that was wrong. That is not what God desires for you, uh, for anyone. And that is wrong. That was cruel and sick what happened to you. Yeah, like that is not how God wants us to treat one another. Right. Throughout the story arc of scripture, that is one thing that I will stand on where like God shows over and over again that God wants us to treat one another well, to treat one another with love. And whenever we get to the point where we abuse one another in any way, those are the times when God comes in, when God steps in and says, no, this is not what I asked you to do. Right. Um, I mean, the last example Jesus shows up and shows a different way of life, a different interpretation of the law that gets us back toward love. And when they crucify him for it, he doesn't fight back. He doesn't cause hurt in return. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, the pain that is just thrown and poured in people's faces in the midst of sexual and physical and emotional abuse is horrendous horrendous so i will say i don't know why those sorts of situations are allowed to happen but i do believe that god is present that god is with you that god loves you Mm. and mourns for that having happened to you and wants to heal you from it. And I don't think that God wants those horrible, horrible traumatic things to turn you into a bitter, hard, 
angry, abusive person. Right. Um, there's someone who has interacted with our church who um, has been burned by many church communities and has been tur- burned by a lot of Christians in the past in her life. And so now um, she is actively coming after people in our church um, with anonymous emails, anonymous texts, harassing people in our church Mm. um, because she has been hurt in the past. Right. And abused um, becomes the abuser is a pattern. mm -hmm. So, I mean, we knew that this person was highly hurt and burned and had a lot of trauma in their past when she first started showing up. And, you know, we had the choice, like, do we try as hard as we can to take this person in to be the community that is super patient and gives grace and tries to help her through this pain because that's what you need. Like that's what she needs. She needs a community of people who will stick around for a long time. Um, I mean, I, I, we heard from Debs, I think in an interview a long time ago that like, however long your trauma lasted, like let's say you experienced the trauma for like three months, it's going to take like three times that long to help heal your trauma. So if this person has been traumatized by Christians in her family for 10, 20 years, it's going to take like three times that long for her to heal. And that's a long time. Um, So we knew right from the beginning that if we were to try to be a community to this person, it was very likely that it would backfire, that she would turn on us and pass her pain on to us. But it, I mean, we still felt like that was what God was calling us to do, to to care for someone. I think that's what God calls for all of us to do. What we're called to do. And so I don't think that God wanted her to be abused or burned. And I also don't think that God wants her to become the abuser, the harasser, the attacker. I think God wants to take her pain and take it away, heal it. Yeah. You know, when we interviewed Mandy Smith, one of the things she mentioned was the idea of like what Jesus does on the cross is absorb to, to roll all of the pain, the hurt, the yep. evil that has happened in the world and swallow it. Hill, and Jesus swallows it. And it's like the cartoon character who like blows up inside um, in order to, to not let anyone else get blown up. Um, right. That's what Jesus does. Jesus absorbs the pain so that, so that it does not spread. And people, Christians, that is what we are called to do when people hurt us, when whatever happens, we are called to emulate Christ in that we absorb that pain and we let it go. We do not let it spread. We don't cause pain. Sadly, we suck at that. (laughs) We're not good at it. Um, But that that's the challenge. So let's say a prayer. So thank you, God, for today. And thank you for loving us 
in whatever situation we're dealing with, uh, in whatever place we find our hearts with you, in whatever way we have been hurt, in whatever way we feel is unfair, make yourself known. Come into our hearts, bring healing that we can't even imagine can happen. Let our eyes see differently. Let our mouths speak differently. Let our heart feel differently. May your grace pour over each one of us. And as that happens, may we share that abundance of grace with one another. And we pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Thanks for joining us for A Different Kind of Walk. Until next time, live well.